Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, if you would, grab a Bible and open up to Luke chapter 23. So as you make your way there, I want to throw out a kind of a general statement. There are plenty of issues in life where it's totally fine to take a middle-of-the-road stance on, right? There are some things where it's okay that, that, that you're, you're trying to figure out the, the decision between two extremes, and the right answer is to kind of just go right down the middle, not ex- quite one side or the other. That works with some things. What it doesn't work with are ultimate things. So let me explain. There's this popular belief held in our society Uh, This is the general religious belief, I believe, of most people you encounter. It goes like this. God really doesn't care what you believe, so just try to be a nice person, and I'm sure you'll be fine. Right? This is what all your neighbors, friends, someone in your family believes God is like, right? He's not really that concerned where you go to church, who you worship, as long as you're sincere and a nice person and things like that. Uh, There's actually a term for this uh, that you'll never use again, but I have to say it anyway. Uh, There was a researcher from Notre Dame, Christian Smith, who coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism to refer, yeah, I know, it just rolls off the tongue, Uh, (laughs) to to refer to this kind of, uh, of general American religion, this general idea of God's not that concerned with the details. He doesn't really, he's not that concerned with who you worship. Just be friendly and try to get along with people. I'm sure you'll do fine in life. Now, like I said, most people you know hold to this position, all right? Even if, you, if they don't think they believe anything, they probably believe this, okay? Here, there's, there's just one problem. It sounds nice, but it's utterly inconsistent with biblical Christianity. See, you can hold to this belief, as I said, most people do. You just can't do so and claim to be a follower of Jesus and do it. You see, because Jesus made bold claims, he was not really like a middle-of-the-road kind of guy. He said things like this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a bold claim. Jesus says that you are either with him or against him. He leaves no room for middle position that says, well, I'm cool with Jesus, but you do you. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not the faith we proclaim. It just isn't. So this, I, this idea, by the way, predates Jesus. Uh, if you, were, if you uh, grew up a Jewish boy, boy or girl, one of the things, one of the first Bible verses you'd have been taught was a thing called the Shema. And the Shema is from, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It goes like this. Hear, by the way, the word for hear or listen is Shema. That's why it's called that. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. By that claim, God is claiming exclusivity, that he is the Lord, he is God, and all other gods are merely pretenders. They are merely people, they are merely people trying to sit on the throne when they think that the king's not watching, okay? And so this idea comes up over and over again. According to the Bible, there is one God who is worthy of your devotion and one way to approach him, and that's through Jesus. No exceptions. Jesus is polarizing. I feel pretty confident saying that. 
You either are with him or against him. And what I hope you will see from the text this morning is that the significance of the cross requires us to decide what side of the cross we are on. So for the past month, if you've been with us, we've been going through a series called The Final Hours, looking at the last hours leading up to the cross. And we are almost there. Actually, on Good Friday, we're going to be covering the cross itself in Luke's gospel. But Luke highlights some things in his gospel presentation. Uh, among other things is Jesus's life is the fulfillment of prophecies, both those of the Old Testament and also the prophecies that Jesus himself made. Now, we've seen Jesus have, the, so far we've seen Jesus have this one last dinner, this last supper with his closest friends, his disciples. And before anything could even happen, Jesus tells them, look, a couple things are going to happen. I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be treated like a criminal. We see, then we see that all of that unfold. Jesus is arrested like a common criminal by the Jewish authorities. He is betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends. And even Peter, who would have been kind of the standout leader of the disciples, abandons him and denies that he even knows him directly to his face. Then last week, we saw that he was tried, and though no one could find fault in him, he was not released. This is where we pick up today. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 16, we're introduced to a character called Barabbas. Verse 16, they, that is the crowds, all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Verse 24, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Okay, so we learn a few things about Barabbas here that are worth noting. First, we see that there was a, we learned that there's from the other gospels that there was this tradition around Passover where one criminal would be released. And so these guys had an option. They had Jesus, who everyone knew was innocent. Literally, they had had multiple trials at this point in time. No one could make a charge stick against him or Barabbas. And we're even told all the details about Barabbas specifically. We're told two things about him, that he's an insurrectionist and a killer. Now, what does it mean that he's an insurrectionist? What it means is Barabbas was every single thing they wanted to stick on Jesus. He was trying to lead a violent revolt against the, the powers that be, okay? So all the charges they had on Jesus were actually rightfully directed at Barabbas. And Pilate is in a pickle here. See, Pilate, what we, what we learn is prior to, this, uh, to, the, uh, to Jesus coming on the scene, Pilate had already had trouble keeping the order in Jerusalem. And so he was kind of in hot water with Rome. So he's in a bit of a dilemma here. He knows this guy is innocent, and he doesn't really want to just go torture and kill an innocent person. But 
If he doesn't give the people what they want, a riot could break out. And that could look bad for him. As a matter of fact, it could be, it could be Pilate's head on the chopping block, block next if a revolt broke out. So he's in this dilemma. Does he release Jesus or does he punish him? So he offers up the idea to the people and their response is simply this. Release to us Barabbas. Can you imagine that? Now think about this from two ways. First, like I said, he's an insurrectionist, so they know he's guilty. They've got him on that. He's a violent criminal. And third, uh, second, we're told he's a murderer. So think about this. In order to, let, to punish Jesus, what they have to do is actually release a killer back into the general population. They're literally not only punishing the wrong guy, but they're also punishing themselves by not handing out justice where justice is due. So there's, a, there's, um, there's this really great statement uh, I, I read that basically when there's a sin or a wrong, something someone has to pay. The question is just who? Generally speaking, we tend to, re- we tend to deal with problems and sins and evil in two ways. We either punish ourselves, so we're really hard on ourselves for the action, or we punish someone else for it, whether they did it or not. Uh, The perfect example of this is my uh, toddler son, uh, Asher. He's about to turn two years old. And if I tell him no really seriously when he's not supposed to do something, he has two reactions that he'll do. One, if he's not near me, he'll hit his head on the ground, just headbutt the ground. And I'm like, why did you do it? And then he'll cry. And I think to myself, why did you do this? Because he has to punish someone for it. But if I'm holding him close by, he just headbutts me. (laughs) And then he is satisfied. Justice has been served on his demands. So that's the idea. We generally speaking do that. This is how we respond to wrongs. We know something's wrong and we know something has to be done in order to restore this balance. So we tend to either punish ourselves. Sometimes you know people who are just super hard on themselves for any situation. And then you also find those who find someone else and they have to blame, they always have to blame someone else. These are the two ways it works. And the answer is that it, the, the correct answer it, for which should you do is neither, right? The biblical answer is no, Jesus has paid the price for our wrongs. We look to him for the satisfaction of justice, okay? And, we're, and so, so Barabbas is the person they, call, they cry out for. He's a, he's a killer that they're going to release back into the society, putting themselves at danger by doing such. And he's already started trouble. What's to stop him from doing it again? Like, <laughs> if you got away with murder and trying to start a revolt and they just let you go, what's your thought? Maybe I'll try to start, a, start another revolt on Tuesday, right? Like, that's the, uh, that would be the idea. Like, I got away with it. I guess I should try it again. Justice exists to actually stop that stuff. And so instead, the, cro- the crowds cry out. And as we said, Pilate doesn't want to punish him. So he goes, well, who should I release? Oh, you know what, guys? I'll release Jesus. I'll punish him so he'll be severely scourged. And so he'll suffer, but we'll let him go. We won't kill him for this. Now, this puts the crowds in a dilemma because they know that that Jesus is an innocent man. The people who tried him and took him through a kangaroo court to uh, to get him arrested, these guys absolutely know that this man is innocent. But if he goes free, then they'll always have this reminder walking around of their guilt. Yeah, we tried to have that guy killed. 
And so they don't, so rather than just letting Jesus be beaten and saying, don't talk about this ever again, instead what they do is they shout louder, crucify, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. See, so long as Jesus is allowed to live, they will always have that reminder of guilt and they cannot live with it. As I said, someone has to be punished when there's a crime. So finally, Pilate caves. He releases Barabbas, the killer, Barabbas, the insurrectionist. And verse 25 says that he delivered Jesus over to their will. That's a significant statement there. It's saying this is a political leader with an army behind him. And he catered to the crowds, to the mob. Guys, this is not an issue of justice, but rather satisfying the demands of the people, a people who want to cover up their own sins. Now, at this point in time also, it's probably worth noting something that you may or may not be aware of, but the Jews present at this time would very much be aware of, which is the idea of scapegoats. So, tradition had it, and it's you can read this in Leviticus, if uh, Leviticus is your favorite book of the Bible, um, but on the Day of Atonement, I, lo- it's, I love Leviticus, I'm not knocking it, uh, it's just one of those ones we ne- people never go to. On Leviticus, you have the, they explain this tradition. On the Day of Atonement, basically they would take um, two goats and they would do what the old-timey version of flipping a coin for it was. Uh, casting lots is the old-time version of a coin toss. And basically, one goat would be called the Azazel, or the Azazel. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And what, ha- what would happen is one goat would be slaughtered and the other goat would go free, and they would send him out into the wilderness. And this was a way of showing that God had removed his guilt from the people. The, the punishment had been paid, and now the sins, their sins are removed from the general population. That is, in essence, what is going on here right now. The lot falls on Jesus, and instead a guilty man goes free, and Jesus is the scapegoat. He's punished for the crime. And Barabbas acts as the Azazel here. He's the one who goes free. So that's the idea we have here. We have this position where basically in order for someone to be punished, in order for someone to go free, someone has to be punished. And then we read about uh, this interesting story as Jesus is led away to the cross in chapter 23, verse 26. It says, and they led him away and seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Okay, we're introduced to another character in here, Simon of Cyrene, which is interesting because we're given no details about this guy. He has no prior, uh, he has no prior information, and we really don't hear about him elsewhere in the New Testament. Only the Gospels talk about this guy, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, what what Mark does is he mentions his uh, his parents, his father and his grandfather. And so what most scholars believe is that Simon of Cyrene either came from some place of prominence in society or would have been a prominent person in the early church. We're not actually sure. It doesn't give us all the details. But what we, the assumption is that we would actually know this guy's name. And what they do is they would conscript someone if they needed to, to help carry a cross if someone couldn't carry their own cross. And basically what he'd do is he would take the back end, of the, the, cross, the crossbars would be over Jesus's back, and he would take the back end up and he would help carry the cross for him 
up to be punished. Now, the reason he did this is for a couple things. This tells us a couple things. One, the reason the Romans didn't do this is because the Romans thought crosses were filthy and shameful, and they wouldn't touch them. So there's a bunch of big soldiers right there who could easily carry this cross and help Jesus out. But instead, they say, I'm not touching that thing. I'm going to go grab someone and have them do that work because I won't touch that thing. But not only that, that tells us something about Jesus, that he was literally, by this point in time, too physically weak to actually carry his own cross. It tells us a little bit about Jesus' humanity, that he actually suffered. You see, I said this before, a lot of the early church had a problem with the idea of a suffering Messiah. And so what they would say is, well, no, 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 no. Jesus went to the cross, but he's God, so he didn't really suffer. No, no, no. The Bible says Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as such, he fully suffered as a man uh, when he endured the pain of the crucifixion. And in this scene, we're also told that there are mourners. Now, I know you don't see this as much, but public mourning was kind of like a tradition in Jerusalem that time. Even if you didn't know the person, you might, if you saw a funeral uh, progressing, you might stop and weep for them. It was just part of their culture, part of their society. If, no, if there was no one to mourn for a person, at times mourners would literally be paid to follow alongside funeral processions. And so what we have here is, these, is women coming up and mourning for Jesus as he's going to the cross. Now, it's worth noting that the gospel highlights their, their gender here. Uh, Luke actually, uh, of all the gospels, really likes to highlight some special women of faith. Uh, for example, Luke's gospel contains uh, the detail, starts out with the details of two specific women of faith, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the, or of John the Baptist. Uh, Luke includes all these stories, like the story of Anna, the widowed prophetess of the tribe of Asher, who, upon seeing Jesus, is the, one of the first people to speak of the redemption that has come to God's people. Uh, Though women are often, were often minimized in society, Luke highlights these women of faith frequently in his gospel, showing that they were stand out in their faith. But most importantly, the appearance of the mourners seems to be the fulfillment of a prophecy. Remember, I said Jesus came and fulfilled prophecy. So Zechariah, some 600 years before this, wrote this prophecy down. Zechariah chapter 12. He said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Here we have God's son going to be have his hands pierced on the cross, and we have people acknowledging this and mourning him. So Jesus is physically weak. He's nearing death, and Luke records this strange moment where instead of just going, Jesus actually stops and addresses the mourners. Verse 28, But turning to them, Jesus said, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Okay, what does this mean? Weird last speech from Jesus, right? What does Jesus mean by this? Well, first, he calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. This was a, Jesus at times uh, would address Jerusalem basically as a, as a person. Uh, for example, when, it near, uh, when he was entering Jerusalem, 
Luke chapter 13 records this statement. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children, that is your sons and daughters, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice that Jesus addresses the city as though it were a person. And that he says they have hindered their sons and their daughters from coming to him in faith. And Jesus says that they, as a result, they are the ones for whom the punishment falls. He says, your house is forsaken, meaning I am leaving you behind. Second, Jesus doesn't ask for pity from them. He tells them to weep for themselves. Cry for yourselves, he says. Weep for yourselves. His words of doing this call from uh, another text, a prophecy out of Hosea which speaks of God bringing down his judgment on Israel. Uh, Hosea chapter 10, the same section that contains those lines, fall on us, cover us, begins with this. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruits. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built, and his country improved, he improved his altars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. What's happening here? Well, Israel by rejecting Jehovah as Lord and Jesus as King, has incurred God's judgment, his wrath. God has restrained his wrath in patience. But this moment, when God's perfect son is being tortured and arrested like a criminal, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Judgment was coming for the house of Israel. That's what's happening here. So what do we take away from all this? Well, here's the big idea for this week, guys. Every week I say, if you forget, if you remember nothing else, just remember this. The cross forces us to decide who we will stand with. Let me say that again. The cross forces us to decide who we will stand with us. Every one of us must decide who we will side with, Christ or the world. The religious leaders in the crowd had made their choice. Jesus was guilty and it didn't matter how much evidence they lacked to prove it. But Jesus, because of the gravity of the claims he made, has to be addressed, as I said. You will either be on the side of the mourners or on the side of the crowd shouting, crucify, crucify. There is no neutrality. He's either the Lord or he isn't. But if he is, then we must submit to him. Guys, you don't make the claims Jesus made and be just a nice guy. He's either really who he said he is or he's a liar and we should have nothing to do with him. But if he's who he said he is, then we must submit to him as Lord because he is God in the flesh. To, to refuse to acknowledge him as that is to simply deny him. Jesus' words to the daughters of Jerusalem let us know something. Judgment is coming. It was coming for those who denied Jesus then, who stoned the prophets, but the Bible teaches that an even greater judgment is still to come. See, one day Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, we read in scriptures. He will separate those who reject him from those who accept him as Lord, and he will make that separation permanent. Those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior will enjoy the joy of eternal life, which Christ died to secure, and those who reject him will be cast out from his presence for eternity and will discover what a life lived apart from God's good graces is actually like. Guys, I don't say this lightly. I say this because these words have meaning. We all must make a choice who we will serve. 
In the end, you are either Barabbas or you are Jerusalem. You will either see Jesus as the punishment, but you will either have your sins, your guilt laid on Jesus so that you might go free, or you will receive the just punishment for your sins yourself. There is no other way. If there were, Christ would have died in vain. See, you and all, I all must respond to the message of the gospel. If we don't address it, it only gets worse. As we see from this passage, if Christ isn't your scapegoat, something else will bear the punishment. You will either try to punish yourself or punish, your, punish others, but guys, here's the truth. We don't understand the gravity of our sin. If we did, we'd realize there's only one way, and that was to punish God's perfect son. Mark my words, the issue of your sin doesn't go away. It is always before us unless it is nailed to the cross of Christ. But here's the good news. Jesus is always faithful to forgive. He is compassionate and gracious. He is gentle to the mourners, warning them to escape the wrath to come. Just as he is with us, even in his last moments, Jesus is more thinking about the people he's speaking to than his own safety. Jesus can do all this because he takes the place of the guilty. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist declared, who takes away the sins of the world. He goes to the cross for the sins we have committed, and in a beautiful exchange, God lays the punishment on him and pardons us. So, as Christ declared, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, God offers real forgiveness and true freedom because Christ provides full atonement for sins. He offers it freely as a gift. All you have to do is simply receive it. So how do you know that you have actually received this gift? How do you know you've actually received God's gift of forgiveness? Well, the Bible says that there's evidence to show it. Evidence that Christ is your Savior and Lord. And it says it will be seen in how you treat others. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, John declares, he is a liar for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. For who, he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The, the apostle John tells us this. Jesus said himself, he who is forgiven little loves little. The evidence of the fact of whether Christ has forgiven you and poured out his love on you is if you forgive others and if you love others. That's the evidence. It's not the grounds of your, of your release. It's the proof of your release. That's how you know you're truly free in Christ. See, the cross divides the world in two. It separates the kingdom of darkness from the kingdom of light. And there is no middle ground. You are either with him or against him. And we must make a decision. See, Red said it great last week. Standing with Jesus isn't just a decision, but a lifestyle. Make no mistake, he didn't mean that you don't have to make a decision. Rather, you have to make that decision daily. You will see the fruit of it as you actively choose faithfulness to Christ over allegiance to the world. You will see it as you refuse to hold on to grievances and rather see that Christ has already forgiven you far more than you will ever have to forgive another person in this world. That's the good news. This is what Jesus Christ died to provide. Not only a pardon, but an assurance of pardon. You can know with confidence that your sins have been laid on Jesus and that you are no longer a slave to sin's control, 
but rather a free man who is truly free, a child of God. That's the gospel. Bow your heads, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you were pleased to look on your son and punish him, but pardon us. God, we are unworthy of this. We could never earn it. That's why it's called grace. You don't earn it, you just receive it. Lord, help us all to make that decision to receive you this day. Help us to place faith in you as our Lord and our Savior. Guide and direct our lives. God, though you separate the world, we want to stand with you. Help us to reject the lie that we can simply be passive in our belief of you. Lord, you want active faith. You call us to follow you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for this exchange. For by trusting in Jesus Christ as our atonement, we are restored to a relationship with you. Be glorified as we remember the Lord's Supper, as we continue in worship, we pray. Amen.